This is The Guardian. It's 75 years this week since Aniram Bevan created what is arguably the UK's most fondly loved institution. This isn't an orthodox government, and I'm not an orthodox minister of health. But faced with strikes, a staffing crisis, an ageing population and increasing calls for big reforms, this doesn't feel like the happiest of birthdays. Unless we act now, for the long term, the challenges we face will only get worse. So, on its 75th anniversary, is the NHS in need of another watershed moment as big as its foundation in 1948? I'm John Harris and you're listening to Politics Week in the UK for The Guardian. Joining me today are the journalist and writer Isabel Hardman, the author of a brilliant new book titled Fight for Life, which is about the NHS's long history, and Pat Cullen, General Secretary of the Royal College of Nursing. Hello to you both. Hi, John. Hi, thanks for joining us. Now, we are recording this on Wednesday, and I know that you've both been to the commemorative service at Westminster Abbey uh, in honour of the NHS's 75th anniversary. Here's a question, Pat, first of all. What was it like? Look, for me... When I went into the Abbey today, I um, was thinking of every single nurse that's in our membership and thinking of what the last number of years has been like for them and meant meant to them and what the NHS means for them. And I was honoured to be sitting amongst them. I did see politicians arriving uh, and it was quite surreal to listen to what they had to say about the NHS but when I'm sitting in amongst those nurses in the Abbey today and looking at their faces and listening to their conversations I can't help thinking that whilst today is a wonderful celebration it should not take away from the fact that um, the beating soul and the beating heart of the NHS were the nurses that were in the Abbey today but actually the, the hundreds of thousands that I represent that are working under enormous pressure. So you sort of experienced two narratives about the event simultaneously. There were sort of two mm. things going on. Mm-hmm. Isabel, what was it what was it like for you? Yeah, very similar in the sense that it, I think it managed to tread the line quite well between celebrating the healthcare workers who work really hard in the NHS and acknowledging that this is not a moment of triumph for the health service. I mean, I think that was mentioned in, you had testimonies from healthcare workers, um, all of whom I think gave at least a nod, if not a a very loud gesture towards the, the fact that the health service is in crisis at the moment. So I don't think that it was the sort of saccharine, triumphant kind of, you know, clap for carers that some of the people who didn't go to the service thought it was going to be. And I think also one of the things that people who've been criticising having this service at all have missed is that this is quite a common thing for Westminster Abbey. I mean, it's where we sort of celebrate public service in this country. In 2019, they had a service to commemorate 50 years of the continuous at-sea deterrent. So they basically had a sort of Dr. Strangelove church service where they talked about how much they loved the bomb. Praying so and singing the not, hymns you know, in praise of nuclear weapons. Yeah, yeah. So by, com- exactly, by comparison, the, you know, this, this was entirely yeah. appropriate. <laughs> exactly, exactly. This was, this was much milder in comparison. <laughs> Uh, and honest, it sounds like. The, did you feel that, Pat? That that I mean, you can't avoid the subject of the crisis in the NHS. And did you feel that, as Isabel says, there was there was some degree of honesty at the core of what happened? Well, I do. I definitely do. I think they would have been very stupid not to. 
um, because it's etched on every nurse's face, even those that were lucky enough to be in the Abbey today. Today, we will be talking about, obviously, the NHS at 75. We will be trying to diagnose what's right and what's wrong with it. And we'll be talking, obviously, about the politics of the NHS, how the health service might figure in the next election and what the two main Westminster parties may have or not have to say about it. Let's talk about this anniversary. Now, you've just um, made reference to this very pointedly. The NHS, as everyone listening will have noticed, is 75 years old this week. But by an accident of timing, that anniversary arrives and we're witnessing the most troubled point for the NHS I think I can remember, certainly since the 1980s. We all know what's going on. Here we are in the wake of the pandemic and in the midst of continuing austerity. Um, and we all know that figures from the King's Fund last week, for example, showed we're more likely to die from heart disease and cancer than many other people in comparably wealthy countries. Earlier this year, NHS figures revealed one in 10 patients arriving at accident and emergency were waiting at least 12 hours. Meanwhile, strikes are ongoing. Pat and her union have a story there, but we all know what's going on with uh, junior doctors. And consultants have become the latest workforce group to ballot in favour of industrial action. So let's just talk about crisis for a start. Isabel, you've just written this authoritative history. In that context, how bad is it now? I think it's the worst crisis that the NHS has has ever been in. And it has swung from crisis to reform and resolution and then back to crisis throughout its history. Indeed, when you look at archive um, documentaries from the BBC on all of the anniversaries uh, of the NHS over the past few decades, pretty much all of them have been it's in some kind of crisis. How much longer has it got left? Has it outlasted its purpose? And I'm talking from about sort of 10 years in. Um, so it's always had that feeling of crisis. But the reason I think this one is the worst is not just the the record waiting list or as Pat really eloquently described at the start of this podcast, the total exhaustion on the faces and in the bodies of the staff. It's also the political context. So the NHS has got to a place where it doesn't exist in place of fear, as Nye Bevan said, um, for a lot of people. So the, the reason we have this sort of visceral love of the health service is that we think that if we get ill, we don't need to worry about the cost of our treatment or indeed whether that treatment is going to happen. Yeah. And I think for a lot of people, we've got back into that place where it's not clear whether the NHS is going to be able to yeah, be yeah, there yeah, for yeah, us yeah, yeah. or whether we're going to need to go private. And that's a really precarious position for a service supported by general taxation to be. It's not just that there is a fear um, which drives people, some people who can afford it, into private medicine. I think people have a fear of what might happen to them in an overburdened, under-resourced, crisis-plagued NHS, right? So the idea that that hospital is a safe place um, now has weakened in a lot of people's minds, which again is a sort of indication of the crisis in the NHS. Just in terms of the fundamental features of the crisis, I mean, I think we all know, but I'm interested to hear it from both of you. Can you just reel off a few? What what are the basics? What is going wrong? Pat, first of all. Well, look, uh, the NHS, and we, we even know from, from our nursing profession, has been subject to reform after reform. And what, what, what does reform mean over this past decade for, for nursing and for the NHS? It essentially has meant cut after cut. And regardless of what the health secretary has come out on the media this morning and said about that the NHS has not been subject to austerity, it absolutely is. That's why we have the nursing crisis that we've got, that we've 50,000 vacancies in England alone and 12,000 vacant medical posts in England. So what did they do over this 
past decade, this government. They subjected the NHS, and in particularly nursing, to cost efficiencies. They made sure that the balance sheet was more important than care, and consequently, nursing paid the price for that. And then what also happened alongside that was an over-reliance on privatising healthcare. And that's what happened with, with bringing in um, agencies to boost the nursing workforce that they actually slashed year after year. If this was a business, the shutters would have been brought down many, many years ago and the people responsible for it, for, for that business would have been sacked. Isabel, if you look at the statistics, the sense of a service in crisis becomes very stark. Certainly when you're looking at um, England, we're talking about the English NHS here, chiefly through the prism of Westminster, but the same thing, broadly speaking, applies to the Scottish, Welsh and Northern Irish branches of the NHS. If you look at numbers of beds per patient, if you look at uh, numbers of scanners, for example, per patient, you find there are these huge disparities. So, so that stares you in the face. It's just a matter of record, really, that we have poorer healthcare now via the NHS than comparable countries. Yeah, and that's the, the, the point that's really worth making is that it's not just that healthcare across developed nations is under pressure, which it is, but we have a particular set of circumstances in the NHS uh, when it comes to the things that we have chosen to invest in or, or not to invest in that has exacerbated this. Go on, so, tell me what that means specifically. You know, was, what, what has been chosen to invest in and what hasn't been? So we have incredibly low levels of capital investment uh, in the NHS compared to other developed health systems. Which means decaying decaying buildings. Yeah, which means decaying buildings. And I mean, it's so tangible, isn't it? It's not something you hide away because if you, for instance, if you're a patient in High Wycombe, your hospital, which was built in the 60s, early 70s, um, is basically held together by scaffolding at the moment and is conducting, I think it's 2,000 fewer operations a year as a result of the the crumbling fabric um, you know, if you wanted a metaphor for the NHS, you just need to look at the NHS and see how it is physically falling apart. A, a, a hospital in Liz Truss's constituency um, or near Liz Truss's constituency is held up by stilts while uh, it waits for building work to repair um, its degrading concrete. So we've got this huge maintenance backlog as a result of low capital investment. But low capital investment is also obviously about, as you say, the machines, uh, the things that help doctors and nurses uh, do their jobs more efficiently or not. And then it was only in the past week that we got a workforce plan that, while hugely important and you know very welcome, is obviously going to take a very long time to bed in. And uh, we've had a terrible attitude towards uh, long-term planning uh, when it comes to uh, the NHS workforce. We've spent too long as, as a country relying on other health systems to supply um, health workers. And they've done a fantastic job for the NHS, but it's unethical for us to have continued to, to this day uh, taking so many people for, from overseas. Pat, firstly, do you agree with that? And then, because that could be argued as a somewhat contentious point. And then the, the second question, while you're here, can you just um, refresh our memories as to where your members, the RCN's dispute with the government, is up to right now? Yeah. So that, that first point that uh, perhaps we have relied too much on medical personnel from overseas and that somehow has blurred into the, the staffing crisis that we're faced with now. Look, John, that that is such an important point to address. This week, the International Council of Nurses is meeting in Montreal, and we are one of the largest members in ICN. Our representatives have spoken to me every evening, and they've said, actually, they felt embarrassed and humiliated by listening to the other countries 
that we have raided their resource from the poorest of countries who are members of ICN, almost begging countries such as us to stop taking their resources because they are on their knees, not being able to provide the most basic of healthcare because they are training and educating their nurses for us. And we are plunging those countries into total despair and it has to stop. It really has to stop and we give nothing back. And then what do we hear this government talk about? about stopping the small boats. And look, we only have to go back to Windrush to realise that without internationally educated nurses, this NHS would never have survived 75 years. OK, and then very quickly on that that second point about where exactly the nurses dispute with the government is up to yeah. now, because I know that the threshold for another strike ballot wasn't met. That was announced last week. So where, broadly speaking... What's going on? Well, it's it's certainly um, our dispute isn't over. Over 100,000 nurses who are participated in this ballot, whilst we didn't meet the threshold, have said loud and clear they will continue to strike to have their voice heard and to be paid decently and to save the NHS. So any government that thinks that they can turn their back on nursing now simply because we didn't meet their draconian legislative requirements is fooling themselves, but they'll not fool the people of this country and they'll certainly not fool nursing. So it's time to get back around the table again. Okay, Steve Barkley, I hope you're listening. Um, Now, I just want to talk uh, briefly about the sort of wider cultural context for this 75th anniversary. We all know the former Conservative uh, Chancellor, Nigel Lawson, RIP, called the NHS the closest thing the English people have to a national religion. Um, Somehow in the last sort of 25 or 30 years, this idea that we are all fond of it to to an extent that feels almost like a faith, there's something almost spiritual about it, has become a commonplace. It sort of assumed a very vivid form in the famous opening ceremony to the 2012 London Olympics. And, and we're seeing it again, arguably, that aspect of our, of our collective attitude towards the NHS in the way this anniversary is being celebrated. Now, Isabel, in your book, you write... There are some aspects of the British love for the NHS that are very hard to explain to outsiders. Justin Bieber helping a choir to get to number one being a recent example. Um, (laughs) But insiders, you go on, don't always appreciate the strength of sentiment. Remember the discomfort that the carers who were being clapped during the pandemic felt. And I encountered a striking number of senior figures across the NHS who privately described some of the I love the NHS sentiment to me as a bit creepy. Here's a question, a historical question. When did we start worshipping the NHS? Because, I, I mean, again, I'm quite old. We didn't do this in the 80s. I don't think we did it much in the 90s. And then something happened, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it was It was actually, it's interesting because the, the Nigel Lawson quote is obviously hugely famous, but he wasn't the first to talk about the NHS in religious terms. In fact, Barbara Castle um, described it also as being um, like a church. And... I mean, to a certain extent, it's overdone this idea of the religious fervour because it's often used by commentators who say, you know, we're so religious about the NHS that we don't want to have a debate about it. I mean, we never stop talking about it. The only thing we talk more about is the weather. The idea that we've been too religious about it for there to be reforms. I mean, Pat will have seen the sort of endless reorganisations ever since the, the late 80s onwards. So we've sort of 
you know, I think we're definitely into reform in a way that, that the kind of stereotypical caricatures of it suggest that we're not. So you don't buy the idea that that sort of arguably quasi-religious thing gets in the way of talking about reform. I think politicians use it somewhat cynically, Pat. Would you agree? Sometimes when politicians drone on about our beloved NHS and our wonderful NHS and David Cameron said there are three letters that matter to me, N, H and S, and we all know what his policy record is, right? It can serve as quite a convenient smokescreen, all of that sort of quasi-religious fervour, can't it? It can, because they know when they talk about the NHS, they're actually tuning in to whatever every single person in the country believes in the NHS. If you look at what what does the NHS deliver, how could it not be what it is? How could it not be so sacrosanct to the people of this country? It interacts with 1.6 million patients every single day. And look at at just in 2021-22, coming out out of a pandemic, 570 million interactions across primary care, community care, hospitals, ambulance services, etc, etc. What other institution provides that? So it is the beating heart of, of our country and will remain that for the people. And um, I, I think the only people that doesn't seem to realise that at the minute are our politicians. Here's a little note of tension, right? So my uh, most recent experience of the NHS was when I broke my foot. I broke my fifth metatarsal, which is the outside bone on your foot, when I was, I was having an anxiety dream about how much work I had to do for The Guardian. And I jumped out of bed and broke my foot. And my experience there was really quite amazing. I went to a minor injuries unit and inside, Isabel's laughing, you've had these anxiety dreams Sorry. probably, but you didn't jump out of bed. Mine is, mine is still about my school exams, though. Oh, no, I still have those as well, but I, I, I don't me. jump out of bed and break my foot. I've sort of acclimatised to those. This was a new level of anxiety. I dreamt I was in the compactor room in Star Wars and the walls were closing in on me and I jumped up towards the window and the consultant said he'd never seen a fracture like it. So obviously, it was almost like I was doing sleepwalking breakdancing. But anyway, it was fixed gloriously well. I was in and out of minor injuries in about an hour and a half with crutches, x-rays, referred to aftercare to um, the hospital in in Bath, uh, the Royal United Hospital. They were great. It was great. I have another set of experiences about the NHS which relates to the fact that I have a child who is autistic, right? Who was diagnosed Uh, by an NHS paediatrician when he was three and in theory should have had speech and language therapy and occupational therapy via the NHS and that has not happened if you have an autistic child the NHS says your child is autistic we will see you later and you effectively get waved off some of that is about resource and money some of it I would argue is about the fact that ongoing difficult things the NHS has currently constructed isn't that good at It, it can fix you if you're broken really really well but there are other things that maybe it's not so good at which means we ought to think perhaps about divesting the nhs of those things and perhaps other things running them and i don't think saying that should be controversial right so in that sense when people say i love the nhs i always think well it's a bit more complicated than that you're nodding isabel i well i totally agree with that because all my sort of physical health experiences with the nhs including giving birth have been hugely positive but i've um I've had really severe mental health problems over the past few years. And I'm afraid to say that I've you know, often had to go private just to be seen in a timely fashion before I get worse. And I've been very lucky to be able to afford um, up to a point to be able to do that. And so my view of the NHS on mental health is it's never really fully existed um, for people who get mentally ill. And I think a lot of people listening to, to this who have got mental illnesses have a much more complicated relationship with loving the NHS um, than someone who has just broken a bone. And I think that is, as you say, to do with the design, the original design, which um, was focused on a population that had a lot of 
untreated, unmet need, um, you know, women who, who'd never really seen a, a doctor apart from if they'd had a complicated labour and that had obviously cost them money. And we now have complex conditions. We've never really expanded the community and preventive aspects of the NHS that were originally envisaged by Beveridge and Bevan, but there were and always are more urgent and pressing things going on with acute. We now are, in fairness to politicians, in a place where they're very prepared to talk about preventive medicine and need to move towards that and the need to shift resources into the community. They're not so prepared about what that might entail for acute. Does that mean closing hospitals or does it actually mean more cash across the board? It's the sort of debate that they they don't want to have. They don't want to be honest on. We will get into that momentarily in in part two. I think when I said all that, Pat, you were nodding. I mean, that's no slight on nurses or doctors and so on, but there are some things that the NHS, as currently constructed, it seems to me, is told it has to do and it simply can't. Look, we all know that the lowest percentage of the budget, I think it's something like 2% of the overall health budget is spent on primary community and and um, prevention. And that's why we went into the pandemic with both hands tied behind our back. When you think about it, because of the percentage that's spent in, in preventing ill health. And the other services that have absolutely suffered, the children and young people have been neglected yeah. and left behind, and also mental health service. And of course, I would say that being a mental health nurse uh, and having experienced the fight that we've had within mental health services just to get a couple of pounds into the community. I mean, I'm of the opinion, actually, I think that a lot of these things um, will have to be dealt with by organisations that we haven't even begun to think about, let alone yeah. create. My, my personal opinion is that sooner or later we'll need a national autism service, but that's Absolutely. another conversation. Anyway, good. I'm glad to hear you agree. Pat, let's pause here for a minute. When we come back, we'll be talking about why the NHS looks set to be a major subject of debate and argument at the next general election. Welcome back. The NHS, no doubt, is going to loom large at the next election, which is due at some point next year. As happened, it seems to me, in 1997, you sometimes get to a point in the political cycle where people sense that the NHS is in trouble. Maybe they're increasingly scared of getting ill. And most of the time, that always favours and helps the Labour Party. And that, I suppose, is one way in which the NHS now is in the political foreground. But there are much deeper political questions that are much more complex and chewy, some of which have come up in in part one. What to actually do with the NHS, whether it's fit for the 21st century, what we expect it to provide. We'll come on to that second set of questions in a moment. I'm curious to know both of your sense, really, of the role that the NHS plays in politics right now and that it's likely to play at the next election. People, as has been said, voters, still are tremendously attached to the NHS. They think it's crucial to British society. They want it to survive and to thrive. But also they have quite a downcast view of it. Opinion polling recently has picked up the fact that, broadly speaking, people, for some reason, I think we all know why, don't expect the NHS in its current form perhaps to survive. They think um, it might get replaced by a payment-based Um, model sooner or later all of that stuff so here's the first question about this subject where the nhs is in politics where are the conservatives with this everything we've talked about really whether conservatives like it or not is uh, a judgment on their record after 13 years in office right here is the prime minister on friday last week outlining his new nhs workforce plan unless we act now for the long term the challenges we face will only get worse 
So today, we're announcing the most ambitious transformation in the way that we staff the NHS in its history, the long-term workforce plan. This is a 15-year plan to deliver the biggest ever expansion in the number of doctors and nurses that we train, and a plan to reform the NHS so we deliver better care in a changing world, and a plan that not only eases the pressures today, but protects this precious national institution for the long term. Isabel, he's got to say something, right? But I wonder, it seems to me that the Conservatives now are trapped in a huge political mess largely of their own making. That's the blunt fact. Yeah, I mean, I don't think anyone feels particularly sorry for them in that respect. And Rishi Sunak did make uh, cutting waiting lists uh, one of his five people's priorities that he said that the voters could uh, judge him against at the next election, uh, all of which are looking increasingly shaky as we actually head towards an election. So I think he's he's wishing he'd set the bar even lower. Um, <laughs> what do you mean? He should, his pledge should have been, waiting this aren't going to get any worse. Yeah, <laughs> things things won't get better, but they could be worse. <laughs> what a slogan. <laughs> Sounds like a winner. Um, uh, you yeah. know, and I think they, they are in a difficult position because even if waiting lists go down, do you have an electorate that's ready to forgive them for the amount of time they've already waited or that thinks, oh, well, we might as well trust them on this rather than the party that has historically enjoyed the support of voters? But that said, I think it's really worth pointing out that when the NHS has previously been visibly in crisis, it hasn't always decided elections in the way that the Labour Party often hopes it will do you know, it, it's hugely salient. It's something that voters talk a lot about, but it doesn't necessarily seal the deal for political parties. Um, and, and that's something that I know that, that Labour are very aware of. Pat, um, we just mentioned um, Rishi Sunak's five pledges, one of which is getting waiting lists down. Now, you mentioned the name Maria Caulfield earlier, not a politician many people will have heard of until Wednesday morning, but um, she said on the radio, among other places today, that um, the waiting list problem um, will get worse before it gets better, right? I mean, that's the absolute reverse of Sunak's pledge. Were you surprised to hear a minister say that? You know, I'm never really that surprised about yeah, what Maria yeah. says, to be honest. Um, and I hate to say that about her because she's actually a, a fellow nurse. But I listened intently to what she said and I thought, my goodness, what an admission at this point in time. And then she went on to say, but look how brilliant we are. We're bringing down the two-year waits and we're, we've brought down the 18-month waits. And I've had to, um, you know, speak with nurses that have to actually tell those people that they have to remain on those waiting lists. And they suffer from serious chronic ill health. They suffer then as a consequence of being on those waiting lists, poverty, not being able to function in their lives, losing their jobs. Yeah, yeah. They suffer from serious mental ill health. And these are people that have paid in to the NHS year after year after year. And now what are they doing? They're taking out loans. They're, they're looking to their families to try and give them a couple of pounds so they can go private themselves and have an operation just to live uh, a, a basic life. It's scandalous, actually. Yeah, it yeah. really is scandalous what is happening. They sound, Isabella, the danger with politicians and NHS statistics, and this is nothing new, is they sound cold and abstract if you're not careful. And it ends up sounding like Soviet tractor production when the reality is, you know, I can't... I haven't got any dinner. That, uh, if you're if you're not careful, that's where you end up, isn't it? Yeah, and uh, you know, I've I've been a political journalist now for twelve years, and I've sat through so many prime ministers' questions where you've got two uh, generally men 
shouting 12,000 more this and 8,000 fewer that at each other. And as you say, it doesn't, it doesn't mean anything. Um, and that's why we often end up with these more tangible case studies of, you know, people who've uh, missed operations, had operations repeatedly yeah, cancelled, yeah. and then their cancer has become inoperable. That's- when Maria Caulfield is claiming that two-year waits are coming down, the actual visceral reality of a lot of people's everyday experience is that they sat in a corridor with an elderly relative for nine hours at a general hospital last week. So one thing instantly shreds the other. Anyway, now let's move on to the Labour Party. Wes Streeting, the seemingly inescapable Shadow Health Secretary, was speaking on Wednesday morning about Labour's alternative for the NHS. He told Sky News' similarly inescapable Kay Burley about Labour's view on the involvement of the private sector in the NHS. I think we've already got a two-tier system in this country where people who can afford it are paying to go private and those who can't are being left behind. In fact, that's one of the reasons I've said, and not uncontroversially, that if there's spare capacity in the private sector, we will pay for people to use it on NHS terms, free at the point of use so they don't pay a penny. Where I want to get to, if I'm the country's next health secretary, is an NHS that's so good that no one feels forced to go private. Pat, to what extent um, do you have confidence that Labour will do a better job as far as the NHS is concerned as and when it arrives in government? Look, we will judge in the Royal College of Nursing every politician on what um, improvements they make within the NHS, particularly with addressing the, crucially, the, the nursing vacancies. But I did listen to, to West Streeting as well, and disappointed, I do have to say, and I'll be honest with this, very disappointed with West Streeting um, and the lack of support to our nurses during their industrial action, which was really, really hard for every single nurse. And Wes came on the media and said that even if they had been in government, that they certainly wouldn't have um, given nurses a 19% pay rise, which of course nurses weren't asking for. They were asking for their pay to be restored. But we all know, we absolutely all know, and Wes Streeting knows this, that there is concrete evidence that privatisation leads to poor outcomes and an increase in preventable deaths. And the recent analysis that's been carried out by the University of Oxford sets that out very straight. And when you have an over-reliance or a further reliance on private healthcare, what you're doing is actually taking the resource from the NHS and placing it in the private sector and then uh, and, and for profit organisations and stripping the NHS more and more of their resource. Here's a question, Isabel. Wes Streeting talks a lot about reform, right? He says, you know, we're going to be the party that reforms the NHS. You hear that a lot. I never hear him, apart from this somewhat vanilla question, notwithstanding what Pat mentions, this sort of vanilla point about if there's spare capacity, we'll use it to ease waiting lists. Now, we both know, right, that isn't what politicians really mean when they talk about reform. They mean things that are much more thoroughgoing, very often disruptive, right? Is there an extent to which there are things we're streeting and the rest of, of the Labour Party, the Labour leadership, think about the NHS and how to change it, that they're just not letting on because it's too politically dangerous? I mean, I think there does tend to be a conspiracy of silence around uh, NHS um, reform uh, amongst all politicians. But I think to give Wes Streeting credit, he is he's obviously a very hungry politician. He has thought very hard about what to do with the NHS in a way that actually the Blair government hadn't done when, when they came into power in 97. It took them about five years to work out what to do. You know, he's he, he's talked a lot about moving resources, as we were discussing earlier, for, from acute to earlier in the patient's journey, to preventive, to, to community. Um, and that would create quite a lot of upheaval. But 
I think the caution that I have about Labour's reform programme would be that you've got a, a Labour leader, Keir Starmer, who what well, is quite a cautious person. And he sort of enjoys at the moment having these kind of set piece fights, um, largely actually with Jeremy Corbyn, where he sort of takes him out in public and shouts at him. Um, but actually, when it comes to taking decisions, he tries to triangulate, sort of appease different wings of the party. So he'll announce one kind of centrist standing reform here and then do something quite left wing there rather than, you know, having a wholesale program that takes you in a particular direction. It's sort of zigzagging to, to try to keep everyone happy still. Um, and, and there may well be things that he can't stomach. What does the sort of conversation that, that we hear now beginning to bubble up, right, about preventive care, about the idea that you can't just wait for people to be so ill that they need treatment, you have to intervene earlier, about the dire state of public health, about the politics of food and nutrition and exercise and all of that. There is this conversation now beginning to swirl around certainly the edges of politics, but it's yet to take the form of understanding what health policy will look like if it's, if it's functional and it succeeds in the years to come. Do you have a sense of even the beginnings of the answer to that? Because, because this country and how it deals with matters of health and sickness and so on will look very different, won't it? I mean, I would, I would hope so. Um, there is this whole preventive realm that goes way beyond the health service, and as you mentioned, there's you know the whole debate about about food. We're living in an obesogenic society. Does the government need to have an attitude towards food in the way that it did towards smoking, for instance? Um, the Conservatives very much aren't there, but I haven't heard much from Labour on that either. Um, but just specifically with the NHS in terms of prevention, as well as its um, work on treating and indeed preventing. Um, obesity. It also has a huge preventive uh, piece of work to do on mental health, because actually, you know, particularly with children and young people, um, if you teach people uh, healthy uh, patterns of of living in terms of uh, their mental health, you can really help people to, to to avoid falling into into much more serious conditions that 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 need you know, quite costly treatment. Um, so there's a lot to be done there as well. Pat, apart from paying your members considerably more, can you just say two or three things you think would make the, the this beleaguered crisis plate NHS better suited to the circumstances that it faces and the challenges of now? Yes, yeah, simply, we need to move from an illness service to a wellness service. We need to invest in public health, we need to invest in prevention, and we need to seriously invest in primary and community care. And the other thing that, that none of our governments right across the UK have quite cracked, and that is about joint-up government thinking, yeah, about yeah. starting from early years and having an early year strategy right across departments um, that we look at health, education, that we look at housing and all of those other um, areas that affect and, and have implications for public health and start to look at having a joined up strategy here that, that starts from when the child is born right through to, to their early school days. From cradle to grave, as they used to say in, 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 in 1945. Um, just one last question. You can answer this in a, in a word. As a matter of gut feeling, Isabel Ampat, when you look ahead and I say, will the NHS still be here? Will people still be as fond of it? And will they be able to depend on it in 20 years' time, 25 years' time, NHS 100? Be honest, what's your gut feeling? Isabel, first of all. Yes, it will still be here, but no, I don't think we'll have the same confidence um, of, in its dependability. Pat? 
I think it will it will still be here and unless this government changes its thinking then the government needs to change and and make sure that it does last for the next 75 years and certainly nurses will play their part in that. Let's hope. Thank you both for joining us for that brilliant informative and, and really really um, thought-provoking podcast. Thank you Isabel and Pat. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, make sure you subscribe to Politics Weekly UK wherever you get your podcasts and even better, leave us a review. This episode was produced by Frankie Toby. The music is by Axel Cucutier and the executive producers are Daniel Stevens, Maz Ebtahaj and Nicole Jackson. This is The Guardian. 